You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, guys, episode 83. Today, we're talking a little bit more about attachment stuff. I know that we've talked about it a bit in some other episodes, and this time we're coming at it from a different angle. So I'm very, very excited about this conversation. We don't necessarily talk about attachment in the, what I call pop culture way. There's been so much information out there about attachment and your attachment style and all these quizzes and what to do if you're an avoidant attachment in a relationship and making sure that you're able to stay in a relationship and an anxious, I mean, like blah, blah, blah. It actually, <laughs> I poke fun at it. It's actually not a bad thing that this stuff is getting out and people are paying more attention to the way that people relate to people and their styles. But I do think that when we quote, pop culture something a little too much, that's this clinical theory, then we lose real meaning in the deep part of it. So I know that I say this a lot, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, eating disorders are the disorder of disconnection. Now you can think of that in almost a concrete sort of way, where as somebody who struggles with an eating disorder is very likely going to isolate themselves and they're going to spend less and less time with somebody else in that, you know, there you have it, they're disconnected. But in this conversation, when we go through the attachment stuff, we're talking about someone's overall way of relating to the world, way of relating to people, way of relating to food, way of relating to everything in this way of disconnection. So we go through the different ways that somebody disconnects, whether it comes from this anxious place, this avoidant place, and how, of course, it comes up in our relationship with food, how it's informed by our past, informed by our culture, and obviously what we can do about it. But what I really, really love about this conversation is that it takes all of the stuff that we potentially know, maybe some stuff that we don't know, and put it into this beautiful way of understanding something on a whole new level. To help me with this, I have two wonderful women who are the co-owners of a group therapy practice in Texas. It's called Calm Counseling. And they are analytically trained, analytically minded which basically means that they conceptualize treatment in a very similar way to me. And I think when we put these three minds together, our three brilliant minds, we really come to a place that I I don't think any of us could have possibly come to on our own. So I'm very, very excited to share this with you. Let me share a bit about these two awesome women, Catherine Garland and Vanessa Scarangy. So Catherine is a licensed clinical social worker and supervisor, again, Texas. And funny story, when we started talking about our analytic training and our background, Catherine and I actually went to the same analytic institute in New York City. Who would have thought? What a small world. No, not the same time, but cool beans, right? She has a ton of therapy experience, a ton of eating disorder experience, and she just such a perfect person to talk to about this. And then Vanessa is a licensed psychologist in Texas who also has a ton of therapy experience and a ton of eating disorder experience. 
thinks very similarly to me, trying to understand the root of someone's behaviors and making a lot more sense of their eating disorder. So let's get started. Thank you guys so much for joining today. I'm very excited to finally do this. We're in almost the end of spring, but were we ending spring? I don't know. It barely has started here in New York. Something like that. And this has been on the calendar. So I'm very, very excited. Thank you, Vanessa and Catherine, for joining. Thank you. Thanks for Thanks being for here. Having us. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. So something that I always say, I hope our listeners are not like, oh my God, she's talking about this thing again. I talk about how eating disorders are a disorder of disconnection. The, the disease of disconnection, if we're going to be dramatic. Sometimes people use that to understand eating disorders as somebody who retreats further and further into their inflexibility, their rigidity, their eating disorder, if you will. And there's this sort of like sense of isolation and disconnection that's almost a product of the disorder. And that's how some people sort of, I guess, define the disconnection. But when we talk about it this way as analytically minded clinicians, really what we're talking about is the crux of the disorder is someone's almost general way of connecting or disconnecting with the world. And I guess if we're going to use what people have come to understand the world through this pop culture phenomenon of attachment, which is not necessarily so pop culture-y, but has become, is really what we're talking about. That somebody's attachment, quote, attachment to food, attachment to people, attachment to the world and how they perceive the world are all intertwined. I mean, just sort of like general picture. This is how we perceive eating disorder. So let's break all of it down. I mean, there's so much of it to talk about. But first off, and obviously this is trying to oversimplify something that is way, way complex in that someone's way of relating to the world or someone's quote attachment stems from mostly a mix of early family stuff and some experiences and societal stuff. So let's just start off with talking about that piece. And then we can sort of break into each one and talk about it further. I like how you were sort of describing, there's kind of like an irony to some of it, right? That there's like the disconnection piece, but when you look at attachment, really those early explanations of attachment theory are around keeping proximity to caregivers. And so you may have learned how to keep proximity through avoidance or through anxiety or kind of a mixture of different ways of relating to your parent or caregiver. So there is an inherent disconnection piece, but also the desire on some level to keep some amount of closeness to the people in your lives. But maybe that is a muted closeness that doesn't allow you to feel fully connected. I was related, um, but I was thinking about, it's sort of like what you were describing Rahel, is like the chicken egg kind of situation with people mm-hmm. sort of imagining eating disorders are this disease of disconnection and just because of the eating disorder, you don't connect. But really like what Kate was saying, it's you landed there because it's a connection is really hard and potentially your attachment, early attachment experiences made it hard to feel safe in relationships and connecting. And so you develop this nifty sort of way, coping skill of managing all of those feelings and staying separate, maintaining some distance. Yeah. Well, so let's break that down just a little bit more. Um, When we talk about early childhood in terms of specifically your relationship with your family or your primary caregiver, how does all of this even happen from that? So if you're looking at an insecurely attached person versus a securely attached person, 
that securely attached person is going to have relationships that have a lot of flexibility and a lot of room for rupture and repair, knowing that they don't have to be perfect in those relationships, knowing that there's lots of room to make amends and come back together again and find connection. Insecurely attached folks, that can either look like an anxious attachment, an avoidant attachment, or a disorganized attachment style. The anxious attachment style, if you're trying to keep proximity to your caregivers, your early childhood caregivers, you're maybe that's born out of the caregiver was highly avoidant and you are sort of emulating and recognizing this caregiver needs a lot of space and I'm going to provide that. It could also look like having a very anxious caregiver who is sort of flooding you and you're needing to gain a little bit of space to kind of make sure that you can preserve the, the connection with them. So if you're looking at a more anxious attachment style, again, same sort of thing applies that you may be um, sort of mimicking that caregiver who is also highly anxious and needing to stay close to, to feel like you're connected and secure, even if that's not necessarily the most secure attachment. Or it can look like having an avoidant caregiver who you are really clinging to for dear life to strive to stay connected to. Disorganized is really kind of a a mix of kind of bobbing and weaving, trying to emotionally regulate, kind of taking things in in an anxious way, maybe then kind of being in a more avoidant state. That's how I like to think of it in terms of psychoanalytically, you might think of it as kind of a doing and undoing that Mm -hmm. you want to take something in, but you also are compelled to rid yourself of it. Yeah. Well, I think what you're saying is that obviously there's so much intricacy here with the clinical theory, but if somebody is in this general umbrella of quote, insecure attachment, basically what we're saying in early childhood, what we all tried to do is connect with our caregiver to make sure that we're safe and obviously stay alive, but like to do so in the most safe way possible, the most connected way possible. And if mom or whoever primary caregiver isn't able to give us what we need as a baby, then we almost compensate for that. Meaning we still have to stay alive. We still have to stay safe and stay connected. And so what ends up happening, it sounds like there's this, what we perceive to be as this pathology or disconnection or anxious stuff or a disorganization, avoidance that really was at the crux of trying to make things work. So, you know, just also thinking that if somebody is experiencing this, it's not because there's something like inherently wrong with the way that they're wired. This is a a response. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was just like a constant reading of cues, you know, just taking in the information in front of you. And and it's remarkable that babies, infants can do this, but trying Mm -hmm. to understand, should I seek more here or should I back away here? And it's just the Mm -hmm. reading of cues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you say the reading of the cues, because if you think about a lot of times, and I'm sure you can relate to when people come into the room, there are some people that are so good at um, reading body language, whether they say it implicitly, explicitly, if I move around, if I ask a certain question, they're so in tune with reading between the lines that you got to wonder, like, how did mm-hmm. you get so good at this? Yeah. Is this like right. a skill you that you were born with? I don't think right. so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it develops. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, and, and obviously we can potentially unpack all of that way more, but for the sake of this conversation, there's a lot of early childhood stuff, primary caregiver stuff that, that because of the way, again, we're reading the cues, that's how we then interact with others. Yeah. So when we think about that as almost one prong of this, the development of, uh, I guess the disconnection or the way of perceiving the world, the other leg, if we think about it can be the societal stuff. And there's so much in that. So I wonder if we can just unpack a little bit about what that could be and how it would Mm -hmm. affect someone. Yeah. And how they're always feeding each other. I mean, it's so hard to tease it all apart, but absolutely. I'll take a stab. Okay. So a braided leg. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's an Atlantic piece that just came out on how insecurely attached we are in the U S right now. Like we're having this insecure attachment moment. And I think um, so much of that is related to like just the disconnection we're experiencing in life. I mean, we can presume that we're connected to people because we can follow them online, but it's not authentic and real in the same way that it might've been back in my family's from Italy in the old days on the streets, this tiny little town, they really knew what was going on with each other and cared about one another in this deep, profound way. But there's sort of this insecure connection to one another in this moment. There's comparison. There's all these, you know, ways I'm not going to just totally blame social media, but there's this kind of social media can sort of be a way in which it all is presented, you know, like liking and not like all these things, canceling all the things that we are very familiar with. It leads to an insecurity in, can I trust this person? Can I be authentic? Can I make mistakes? Will there be repair? And that makes it really scary to be in relationships, which makes it really compelling to lean on something like an eating disorder to cope. Yeah. And I would just add to that, there's a lot of blame to go around if you want to look at it through that lens. <laughs> Take and a I, number. And I, and I often, <laughs> I like to depathologize the person-centered ways in which that comes about as we're talking about insecure attachment and not thinking about it as, well, this is where you know, you're doing everything wrong. It's like, well, this is how you're coping in a very insecure world. And if there is blame to go around the, just as Vanessa was talking about this, the technology, the technological revolution and how that has just shaped and informed so much of our world over the last 50 or so years, automation, mass consumerism, all of these pressures, the loss of these kind of shared spaces or the town square, this kind of like being able to live communally have really all sort of combined to to make it very difficult to raise a family or to be a person in the world who doesn't feel disconnected and who isn't feeling fearful of a future that maybe is not as optimistic as it once was, which I think Vanessa and I hold a lot of hope, but also like to call that out that, it, you know, why wouldn't we feel a lot of that insecurity at this moment in time? Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, even just uh, over recent years, you're talking about consumerism. There's so much about consumerism and capitalism that fosters this sort of, you're just one tiny speck in the world. There's no individualism. There's no even drive to understand the individual. But I Mm -hmm. guess I wonder, not even I wonder, I mean, like that plus this like influencer culture, it just blew this up that there's... I mean, there's so much in, there's the no individualism, there's no room to be an individual and for the acceptance 
the flexibility mm-hmm. to be the individual and not, I don't know, lose all your followers or get canceled or not be able to make any money or, sure. you know, it's all about everybody has to be a brand. And if you aren't a brand, then you can't make a living. So there's so much intertwined in this. And then when we stick our relationships in our capitalist market, then, I mean, it doesn't abide by the same rules as money does. So we then get really stuck in this culture of wanting to define and interpret our relationships based on how we do so with money. And you could call it, like you could say that it, it there isn't room for the individual, but you could also look at it from the perspective of it's highly individualistic and sort of focused less on community, real community, mm-hmm. and how we're all sort of interconnected, right? And it's more about kind of getting your slice of the pie, which ironically also looks like a lot of sameness, right? Like we're all going to look yeah. the same on the internet. We're all going to do the same things, which signal that we're being successful in life, but aren't necessarily about truly being connected to each other. They're more about sort of being compliant in the system, mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. which then like yeah. slide into that an eating disorder yeah. and you've got yourself big mess, which is kind of what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, it's so intertwined because this is what we're learning from society, from social media, just the expectations of how you go to college and get a job and and make a living for your family. But that embedded in that is this thin ideal where if you look a certain way, then you have the potential to make it. So it's not only some implicit ideas, but totally it's a currency. And so we also learn how to connect or disconnect based on what other people are telling us is the way to connect and disconnect. So, which leads to really inauthentic connection. If you come from a family where there was a lot of avoidance, right, around talking about feelings and not necessarily feeling closely connected to your community, an eating disorder can come in and provide a very applauded way, oftentimes, sometimes if you're doing it in in the societal lens of what is considered successful, way to feel encouraged in your disconnection. And here I am using this behavior that's helping me to not have to be in touch with my emotional state. I'm getting a lot of praise for being pleasing on social media or pleasing in society. And I'm also feeling incredibly sad and disconnected and not truly close to anyone in my life or valuable as just a human being, right? Like as a person, not as an objectified form. Yeah. Which then makes the treatment so tricky and we can go into the intricacies of that in a bit. But if we're asking somebody to strip away that more superficial way of connecting, be it they get whatever it is from people pleasing or the likes or whatever it is, or just on the outside, seeming like you have everything together, then we're asking you to strip that away in order to make room for a little bit more authentic and flexible connection because all the superficial is completely inflexible because if you toe the line, that's it, you're out. So there's this fear that the in-between part, that gap will be just terrible and unfathomable. So Mm -hmm. we're really asking a lot of people to take a huge leap of faith when we're transitioning into connecting a little bit more authentically. 
yeah, without a roadmap, like just go for it. (laughs) Um, And I think I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, if we live in this culture, you know, where attachments, our early childhood attachments are critical, and we all know that. And as caregivers, we're all exposed to the same garbage, so to speak. And so we're sort of tenuously feeling secure. Like maybe, you know, we've moved through the world and have more positive experiences, but I just think there's this like trickle down effect. And so just poor modeling of attachment, you know, poor modeling of being okay with being authentic or being in positive relationships. And so, yeah, you've got, you know, a teenager with an eating disorder whose parents struggle in this way and in the world at large that struggles in this way. And it's really scary. And, you know, it's, it's almost like you have to, in treatment um, and the work that Kate and I do is, you know, deeply relational is like reparent clients, you know, really, Mm -hmm. really orient them to what it means to be in a positive, flexible relationship, because it's probably never been something they've experienced or it's been, you know, there's been hints of it, but it's, um, overall, it's really hard. It's a hard sell because it's way (laughs) messier and doesn't feel or the feelings are there and that's difficult to navigate. Yeah. And it's definitely not glamorous at all. Like what something, uh, a superficial connection might seem like on the outside. And so we might say what it might seem as if we're saying is settle for less because it's never going to be picture perfect. It's never going to be glamorous and great all the time. Whereas let's just pick on social media again. It is all the time. It's supposed to. And even the unglamorous parts are like, guys, I'm going to share my vulnerability moments. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all glamorized. Curated. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we talk about real authentic connection, it is messy. It isn't the same level as what is curated. And so, yeah, it might seem like we're, we have to settle for less, which I mean, we all know it's not more of an internal sense of connection. Um, but you're right. It is a hard sell. <laughs> and, and conversely, if you're, either the teen or the the person who hasn't gotten this praise that your eating disorder is not socially something that is viewed as valuable in air quotes, it might be hard for you to trust that the therapist who's saying to you, there's a different way to be in this world and to not hide or to not feel all the shame that you're experiencing. Maybe it's hard for them to feel like that's possible in, in a society that really gives them very much a different message. Yeah. So I know that we talked about this in, in pockets already, but I I wonder if we can give a little bit more attention to how somebody's disconnection can play out in their relationship with food, whether it just mirrors or it actually serves to regulate. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, think about the emotional, the, the, the parallels with emotions, you know, feeling hungry and feeling full for emotions. And if you're not wanting to feel, you know, there's going to be an attempt to restrict somehow. So that might be restricting your food that might be numbing out through overexercising or numbing out through even binging. But the idea would be that it's like, the emotions are flooding. I can't tolerate this. And so I'm going to use these negative coping skills to manage the the difficult emotions. And so again, with sort of the attachment lens in a secure attachment in that kind of relationship, there is the ability to tolerate discomfort. And so when that's not Mm -hmm. there, 
we have to find ways to do so. And like feeling flooded with emotion, it makes sense that you'd restrict your food to numb out. So I see it as a lot of mirroring. Yeah. And also this piece of in recovery or somebody who has a healthy relationship with food, it's not like they feel great all the time. It's just, how do I tolerate these, what we call negative emotions? Is it something that I feel like I can just sit in or do I have to completely zone out because it's completely intolerable? Right. Sure. And exposure to those feelings in a safe place, right? Like having your client get angry with you that is, you know, really restrictive of that emotion feels like such a success as a therapist in the relational way, right? That it's like, (laughs) as surprising as that might be people, one barometer for success is when our clients or our patients get angry. We're like, yes, she was so pissed (laughs) off at me today. And she told me, you know, like it's it's such a win. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder also if we can speak to the restriction for a second, meaning restricting anything that it's, in this case, it's physical hunger, but it's obviously a lot deeper than that. How an insecure attachment to one's original caregiver can then lead to one feeling like they have to restrict themselves in some capacity. Oh, absolutely. I think I was thinking as you were talking about taking up space, you know, I think if you, again, going back to those social, those cues, not social cues, the cues that you kind of were um, reading as a young kiddo in that early attachment, if you're reading those cues as like, you're too much, if you've got this kind of avoidant caregiver and you're developing this anxious attachment, you're going to lean on taking up less space. That's going to be your, your cue is you are too much and you're going to become small. And so that might be a restriction of food that might not be telling someone how you feel that might be, you know, literally just making yourself small in terms of what you go for in life. So I don't even remember there, which could also, but I mean, that could also be expressed in a different way. Right. Which is like why this is all so confusing and intertangled that someone might also make their words smaller, right. By binging, they might suppress those words and eat because it's hard to say them to someone that they care about or someone who they're in relationship with. So it is so multifaceted and really two sides of the same coin in terms of trying Mm -hmm. to emotionally regulate and keep yourself safe and make sure that you can stay in some kind of proximity to the people around you. Yeah. I mean, another sort of, I guess, has become catchphrase for me is that eating disorders is an expression of what cannot be expressed with words. Mm -hmm. And ultimately for a large majority slash, I want to say like everyone that I've worked with is learning to put your experiences to words and, you know, thinking about how we're thinking about restriction or binging as this metaphor for what you're experiencing inside and coming up with a way to express that with words is ultimately what, what we do. Yeah. it's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if you can think of anything off the top of your mind, but I guess I was wondering if you had like any particular examples of what we were talking about we can go really in any direction just to give people a little bit more context for what we're talking about. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about the expressing dissatisfaction, you know, in relationships. And we were talking about like all celebrating this experience of when a client is mad at us. But I, I recently have been talking to someone about their relationship with someone they're close to and like really sitting in how disappointed they are in a friend 
And this is someone who's well into their recovery. I don't think five years ago, this person would ever have said, I'm like really disappointed. And I'm actually going to tell this person I'm disappointed in them. And I'm doing that in order to preserve the relationship. I think Mm -hmm. that that was like, oh my gosh, we've gotten, you've hit all the points, you know, identifying the feeling and tolerating that. And then taking that a step further, not restricting how you manage that or how you, you know, sit with that, but actually like using your words and conveying to someone that's something that needs to be, you know, I need to address this and knowing that that is in order to make sure that the relationship stays intact. Yeah. So what would be an example of how this person, hypothetically speaking, would have addressed this maybe five years ago? Oh, total restriction. Like probably logged on their fitness pal or whatever it was called, whatever it's called that, like decided not to eat the thing or overexercise or self, they would have turned that into a self-attack somehow. Meaning instead of pointing the finger at the friend and saying, I'm really disappointed, they sort of point it back at themselves and say, now I don't deserve to eat or something like that. Absolutely. Yep. Spot on. Yeah. So if you think about it, the original issue being disappointed by this friend doesn't actually get solved by the restriction, even though it feels like it in the moment. So then you have like this double issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, another thing that you're saying is to preserve the relationship. This is something that I talk about also so often about boundaries. Boundaries sometimes feel like kind of mean if you're pretty firm with your boundaries. And ultimately what it is, is like the biggest respect that you have for a relationship because you want this relationship to last. The only way it would last is if you do have the boundaries, if you're assertive. And I I guess what people need to realize is that we're thinking about things long-term. We're not thinking about things today that are uncomfortable, just like avoiding discomfort because it's not only about just avoiding every bit of discomfort. That's actually good for us. I feel like there's nothing that's really taught me that more than being a parent because it's always like with your kids, it's always this mixture of giving them some flexibility to explore, make mistakes, um, you know, not be rigid and also holding a boundary to keep them safe, to, you know, set expectations, to be consistent. And that is kind of, that's relationships all the time, right? That it's like, if we're going to preserve this thing, we have to communicate what feels good and safe for us. Sometimes we have to be flexible when it feels uncomfortable and there's never a set it and forget it, right? Like my, one of my favorite books that I go back to that was, we read part of it at our wedding ceremony is Can Love Last by Stephen Mitchell and not just no spoiler alerts, but, or well, this is a spoiler alert, but the end of the book talks <laughs> about relationships are a sandcastle built for two. And you know, you build up the sandcastle. It looks great. You've done all the details. And then here comes the wave that comes in and crashes over it and you have to rebuild it again. And just holding on to that fundamental piece of what it means to be connected to other humans, that like social media is never going to show us the messiness of it all and how complicated and obnoxious it is and deep and enriching and all of those elements. And it's a constant struggle of mixing in those two parts of flexibility with boundaries. Yeah. Not to depress anyone about relationships completely being obliterated (laughs) by the water. (laughs) Build it back again. again. The meaning behind that being... You don't ever reach the pinnacle, right? Where you go, oh, it's perfect. We 
finessed it exactly right. It's always changing and growing. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And there's also nothing like bringing our clinical knowledge and our education background to life, like quite being a parent. Because you see kids throughout their development and you see also how we relate, not just being on the child side, because we understood ourselves up until then just as the recipient. So being on the other side of it just sheds so much light on our own relationship with our parents and our own development and childhood. That's really wild. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We are just people. A lot of my therapy is about these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so speaking of therapy, I wonder if we can talk to, even just briefly, how therapy can actually help with this. Obviously, we're all therapists, so we're 100% biased on that it's helpful. But in what ways can it be helpful for somebody who has some version of this disconnection and secure attachment? Yeah, I think uh, I think about about it in that way of like almost reparenting, and not not that I'm everyone's mother as their therapist, but just the idea that it's okay to make mistakes and mess up, and I'm still here, and mm-hmm. really helping them to feel that that's what's healing. And so this, you know, we we practice sort of in this long term way because that takes so much time to build the trust and the ability to tolerate. I can say I'm mad. That takes a long time to get to. So yes, we're totally biased, but therapy is incredibly healing and the journey of recovering from an eating disorder because you're having to learn how to tolerate being in relationships and what better way to practice that than in a relationship with like a super safe person. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly, Vanessa. And I would just add to that one of the most wonderful parts about being a therapist, especially in this particular moment in time, I feel is being able to connect people to how, like, I know I've said it several times throughout this podcast, but their inherent value, because we are not getting that messaging in society right now, right? We are getting that we are either laborers or we are to be glossy photos on the internet, or we are to be mimicking others, right? Versus really getting in touch with like everyone's uniqueness, everyone's incredible value for just existing. And that's, you know, it sounds so simple, but it is really easy to forget right now. Yeah. You know, said so well. Um, well, obviously we can talk about this forever and maybe we will, but offline <laughs> before I let you both go, can you share with our audience where they can find you? Yes. Where are we, Vanessa? Where I know that we have Instagram. Yeah, we have that. But our website is keepcalmatx.com. We're in Austin, so Austin, Texas. And Kate knows our Instagram. Our Instagram handle is calm counseling PLLC. So if after all this, you're still on social media, then I guess you can follow them on social media. (laughs) Yeah, what a delicate balance. Irony and all of it, right? (laughs) Just imperfect people. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having us. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.